11. That the same lines occur, but instead of the frame of the back being covered with silk, tapestry, or other material as in William III. Single quote as time Chippendales are cut open into fanciful patterns, and in his more highly ornate work, the twisted ribbons of his design are scarcely to be reconciled with the use for which a dining room chair is intended. The well-molded sweep of his lines, however, counterbalances this defect to some extent, and a good Chippendale mahogany chair will ever be an elegant and graceful article of furniture. One of the most graceful chairs of about the middle of the century, in the style of Chippendale's best productions, is the master's chair in the hall of the barber's company, carved in rich Spanish mahogany, and upholstered in Morocco leather. The ornament consists of scrolls and cornucopia, with flowers charmingly disposed, the arms and motto of the company being introduced, and fortunately, there is no certain record as to the designer and maker of this beautiful chair, and it is to be regretted that the date 1865, the year when the hall was redecorated, should have been placed in prominent gold letters on this interesting relic of a past century. Apart from the several books of design noticed in this chapter, there were published two editions of the work, and dated, containing many of the drawings found in Chippendale's book. This book was entitled, Upwards of 100 New and Genteel Designs, being all the most approved patterns of household furniture in the French taste, by a society of upholders and cabinet makers. It is probable that Chippendale was a member of this society, and that some of the designs were his, but that he severed himself from it and published his own book, preferring to advance his individual reputation. The sideboard, which one so generally hears called Chippendale, scarcely existed in his time. If it did, it must have been quite at the end of his career. There were side tables, sometimes called sideboards, but they contained neither silhouette nor cupboard, only a drawer for table linen. The names of two designers and makers of mahogany ornamental furniture, which deserve to be remembered equally with Chippendale, are those of W. Ince and J. Mayhew who were partners in business in Broad Street, Golden Square, and contemporary with him. They also published a book of designs which is alluded to by Thomas Sheridan in the preface to his Cabinet Maker and Upholsterer's Drawing Book, published in 1793. A few examples from Ince and Mayhew's Cabinet Maker's Real Friend and Companion are given, from which it is evident that, without any distinguishing brand, or without the identification of the furniture with the designs, it is difficult to distinguish between the work of these contemporary makers. It island however, noticeable after careful comparison of the work of Chippendale with that of Ince and Mayhew, that the furniture designed and made by the latter has many more of the characteristic details and ornaments which are generally looked upon as denoting the work of Chippendale, for instance, the fretwork ornaments finished by the carver, and then applied to the plain mahogany, the openwork scroll-shaped backs to uncoiners or china shelves, and the carved Chinaman with the pagoda. Some of the frames of chimney glasses and pictures made by Ince and Mayhew are almost identical with those of Chippendale. Other well-known designers and manufacturers of this time were Hepolite, who published a book of designs very similar to those of his contemporaries, and Matthias Locke, some of whose original drawings were on view in the exhibition of 1862, and had interesting memoranda attached, giving the names of his workmen and the wages paid, from these it appears that five shillings a day was at that time sufficient remuneration for a skillful wood carver. Another good designer and maker of much excellent furniture of this time was Shearer, who has been unnoticed by nearly all writers on the subject. 
in an old book of designs in the author's possession, Shearer Dillon, and, published according to Act of Parliament, 1788, appears underneath the representations of sideboards, tables, bookcases, dressing tables, which are very similar in every way to those of Sheridan, his contemporary, a copy of Hathaway's book, in the author's possession published in 1789 contains 300 designs of every article of household furniture in the newest and most approved taste, and it is worthwhile to quote from his preface to illustrate the high esteem in which English cabinet work was held at this time. Illustration, China Shelves, designed by W. Ince, reproduced by photography from an old print in the author's possession. Illustration, Girondoles and Pier Table, designed by W. Thomas, architect, 1783. Reproduced by photography from an old print in the author's possession, English taste and workmanship have of late years been much sought for by surrounding nations, and the mutability of all things, but more especially of fashions, has rendered the laborers of our predecessors in this line of little use, nay, in this day can only tend to mislead those foreigners who seek a knowledge of English taste in the various articles of household furniture. It is amusing to think how soon the mutabilities of fashion did for a time supersede many of his designs. A selection of designs from his book is given, and it will be useful to compare them with those of other contemporary makers. From such a comparison it will be seen that in the progress from the Rococo of Chippendale to the more severe lines of Sheridan, Hathaway forms a connecting link between the two. The names given to some of these designs appear curious, for instance, Rhodes Table or Reflecting Dressing Table so-called from the first one having been invented for a popular character of that time, knife cases, for the reception of the knives which were kept in them, and used to, garnish, the sideboards, cabriole chair, implying a stuffed bath, and not having reference, as it does now, to the curved form of the leg, barback sofa, being what we should now term a three or four chair settee, I like so many chairs joined and having an arm at either end, Library case, instead of bookcase. Confident, and, duchess, which were sofas of the time. Bout a stool, a stool having an adjustable top. Tea chest, urn stand, and other names which have now disappeared from ordinary use in describing similar articles. Illustration, ladies' secretaries. Designed by W. Ince. Reproduced by photography from an old print in the author's possession. Illustration, desk and bookcase. Designed by W. Ince. Reproduced by photography from an old print in the author's possession, Hathaway had a specialite, to which he alludes in his book, and of which he gives several designs. This was his Japan or painted furniture, the wood was coated with a preparation after the manner of Chinese or Japanese lacquer, and then decorated, generally with gold on a black ground, the designs being in fruits and flowers, and also medallions painted in the style of Cipriani and Angelica Kaufman. Subsequently, furniture of this character, instead of being japanned, was only painted white. It is probable that many of the chairs of this time which one sees, of wood of inferior quality, and with scarcely any ornament, were originally decorated in the manner just described, and therefore the carving of details would have been superfluous. Injury to the enameling by wear and tear was most likely the cause of their being stripped of their rubbed and partly obliterated decorations, and they were then stained and polished presenting an appearance which is scarcely just to the designer and manufacturer, in some of Hathaway's chairs, too, as in those of Sheridan, one may fancy one sees evidence of the squabbles of two fashionable factions of this time, 
the court party, and the prince's party, the latter having the well-known Prince of Wales plumes very prominent, and forming the ornamental support of the back of the chair. Another noticeable enrichment is the carving of wiggers on the shield-shaped backs of the chairs. The plan of a room showing the proper distribution of the furniture appears on page 193 to give an idea of the fashion of the day. It is evident from the large looking glass which overhangs the sideboard that the fashion had now set into use these mirrors. Some 30 or 40 years later this mirror became part of the sideboard, and in some large and pretentious designs which we have seen, the sideboard itself was little better than a support for a huge glass in a heavily carved frame. The dining tables of this period deserve a passing notice as a step in the development of that important member of our lorries and penates. What was and is still called the killer and claw table came into fashion towards the end of last century. It consisted of a round or square top supported by an upright cylinder, which rested on a plinth having three, or sometimes four, feet carved as claws. In order to extend these tables for a larger number of guests, an arrangement was made for placing several together. When apart, they served as pier or side tables, and some of these the two end ones, being semicircular may still be found in some of our old inns. It was not until 1800 that Richard Gillow, of the well-known firm in Oxford Street, invented and patented the convenient telescopic contrivance which, with slight improvements, has given us the table of the present day. The term still used by auctioneers in describing a modern extending table as a set of dining tables, island probably, a survival of the older method of providing for a dinner party. Gillow's patent is described as an improvement in the method of constructing dining and other tables calculated to reduce the number of legs, pillars and claws, and to facilitate and render easy their enlargement and reduction. As an interesting link between the present and the past it may be useful here to introduce a slight notice of this well-known firm of furniture manufacturers, for which the writer is indebted to Mr. Clark, one of the present partners of Gillows. We have an unbroken record of books dating from 1724, but we existed long anterior to this, all records were destroyed during the Scottish Rebellion in 1745. The house originated in Lancaster, which was then the chief port in the north. Liverpool not being in existence at the time, and Gillows exported furniture largely to the West Indies, importing rum as payment, for which privilege they held a special charter. The house opened in London in 1765, and for some time the Lancaster books bore the heading and inscription, Adventure to London, on the architect's plans for the premises now so well known in Oxford Street, occur these words, This is the way to Oxbridge. Mr. Clark's information may be supplemented by adding that from Dr. Gillow, whom the writer had the pleasure of meeting some years ago, and was the thirteenth child of the Richard Gillow before mentioned, he learned that this same Richard Gillow retired in 1830, and died as late as 1866 at the age of 90. Dowbigan, founder of the firm of Holland and Sons, was an apprentice to Richard Gillow. Mahogany may be said to have come into general use subsequent to 1720 and its introduction is asserted to have been due to the tenacity of purpose of the doctor given, whose wife wanted a candle box, an article of common domestic use of the time. The doctor, who had laid by in the garden of his house in King Street, Covent Garden, some planks sent to him by his brother, a West Indian captain, asked the joiner to use a part of the wood for this purpose, it was found too tough and hard for the tools of the period, but the doctor was not to be thwarted, and insisted on harder tempered tools being found, 
and the task completed, the result was the production of a candle box which was admired by everyone. He then ordered a bureau of the same material, and when it was finished invited his friends to see the new work, amongst others. The Duchess of Buckingham begged a small piece of the precious wood, and it soon became the fashion, on account of its toughness, and peculiarity of grain. It was capable of treatment impossible with oak, and the high polish it took by oil and rubbing not French polish, a later invention, caused it to come into great request. The term, putting one's knees under a friend's mahogany, probably dates from about this time. Thomas Sheridan, who commenced work some twenty years later than Chippendale, and continued it until the early part of the 19th century, accomplished much excellent work in English furniture. The fashion had now changed, instead of the rococo or rock work literally rock scroll and shell rock white cock ornament, which had gone out. A simpler and more severe taste had come in, in Sheridan's cabinets, chairs, writing tables, and occasional pieces we have therefore no longer the cabriole leg or the carved ornament, but, as in the case of the brothers Adam, and the furniture designed by them for such houses as those in Portland Place, we have now square tapering legs, severe lines, and quiet ornament. Sheridan trusted almost entirely for decoration to his marquetry. Some of this is very delicate and of excellent workmanship. He introduced occasionally animals with foliated extremities into his scrolls, and he also inlaid marquetry trophies of musical instruments, but as a rule the decoration was in wreaths of flowers, husks, or drapery. In strict adherence to the fashion of the decorations to which allusion has been made, a characteristic feature of his cabinets was this one-necked pediment surmounting the cornice, being a revival of an ornament fashionable during Queen Anne's reign. It was then chiefly found in stone, marble, or cut brickwork, but subsequently became prevalent in inlaid woodwork. Sheridan was apparently a man very well educated for his time, whether self-taught or not one cannot say, but that he was an excellent draftsman, and had a complete knowledge of geometry, is evident from the wonderful drawings in his book, and the careful though rather verbose directions he gives for perspective drawing. Many of his numerous designs for furniture and ornamental items, are drawn to a scale with the geometrical nicety of an engineer's or architect's plan, he has drawn in elevation plan, and minute detail, each of the five architectural orders, the selection made here from his designs for the purposes of illustration, is not taken from his later work, which properly belongs to a future chapter, when we come to consider the influence of the French Revolution, and the translation of the Empire style to England, Sheridan published the Cabinet Maker and Upholsterer's Drawing Book in 1793 and the list of subscribers whose names and addresses are given, throws much light on the subject of the furniture of his time. Amongst these are many of his aristocratic patrons and no less than 450 names and addresses of cabinet makers, chair makers and carvers, exclusive of harpsichord manufacturers, musical instrument makers, upholsterers, and other kindred trades. Included with these we find the names of firms who, from the appointments they held, it may be inferred, had a high reputation for good work and a leading position in the trade, but who, perhaps from the absence of a taste for getting into print and from the lack of any brand or mark by which their work can be identified, have passed into oblivion while their contemporaries are still famous. The following names taken from this list are probably those of men who had for many years conducted well-known and old-established businesses, but would now be but poor ones to conjure with while those of Chippendale, Sheridan, 
or Hepolite, are a ready passport for a doubtful specimen. For instance, France, cabinet maker to His Majesty, St. Martin's Lane, Charles Elliot, upholder to His Majesty and cabinet maker to the Duke of York, Bond Street, Campbell and Sons, cabinet makers to the Prince of Wales, Mary Legone Street, London. Besides those who held royal appointments, there were other manufacturers of decorative furniture Thomas Johnson, Copeland, Robert Davy, a French carver named Nicholas Collett, who settled in England, and many others, in Mr. J. H. Pollan's larger work on furniture and woodwork, which includes a catalogue of the different examples in the South Kensington Museum. There is a list of the various artists and craftsmen who have been identified with the production of artistic furniture either as designers or manufacturers, and the writer has found this of considerable service. In the appendix to this work, this list has been reproduced, with the addition of several names particularly those of the French school omitted by Mr. Pollen, and it will, it is hoped, prove a useful reference to the reader, although this chapter is somewhat long on account of the endeavor to give more detailed information about English furniture of the latter half of last century, than of some other periods, in consequence of the prevailing taste for our national manufacture of this time. Still, in concluding it, a few remarks about the sideboard may be allowed. The changes in form and fashion of this important article of domestic furniture are interesting, and to explain them a slight retrospect is necessary. The word, buffet, sometimes translated, sideboard, which was used to describe continental pieces of furniture of the 15th and 16th centuries, does not designate our sideboard, which may be said to have been introduced by William III. and of which kind there is a fair specimen in the South Kensington Museum, an illustration of it has been given in the chapter dealing with that period. The term, stately sideboard, occurs in Milton's, Paradise Regained, which was published in 1671, and Dryden, in his translation of Juvenal, published in 1693, when contrasting the furniture of the classical period of which he was writing with that of his own time, uses the following line, no sideboards then with gilded plate were addressed, the fashion in those days of having symmetrical doors in a room, that island false doors to correspond with the door used for exit, which one still finds in many old houses in the neighborhood of Portland Place and particularly in the palaces of St. James and of Kensington, enabled our ancestors to have good cupboards for the storage of glass, crockery, and reserve wine, after the middle of the 18th century. However, these extra doors and the enclosed cupboard gradually disappeared, and soon after the mahogany side table came into fashion it became the custom to supplement this article of furniture by a pedestal cupboard on either side instead of the cupboards alluded to one for hot plates and the other for wine. Then, as the thin legs gave the table rather a lanky appearance, the guard divan, or silhouette, was added in the form of an oval tub of mahogany with bands of brass, sometimes raised on low feet with casters for convenience, which was used as a wine cooler. A pair of urn-shaped mahogany bases stood on the pedestals, and these contained the one hot water for the servants' use in washing the knives, forks and spoons which being then much more valuable were limited in quantity, and the other held iced water for the guests' use. A brass rail at the back of the side table with ornamental pillars and branches for candles was used, partly to enrich the furniture, and partly to form a support to the handsome pair of knife and spoon cases, which completed the garniture of a gentleman's sideboard of this period. The full-page illustrations will give the reader a good idea of this arrangement. 
and it would seem that the modern sideboard is the combination of these separate articles into a one piece of furniture at different times and in different fashions. First the pedestals joined to the table produced our pedestal sideboard, then the mirror was joined to the back, the silhouette made part of the interior fittings, and the banishment of knife cases and urns to the realms of the curiosity hunter, or for conversion into spirit cases and stationary holders, the sarcophagus, often richly carved, of course succeeded the simpler silhouette of Sheridan's period. Before we dismiss the furniture of the dining room of this period, it may interest some of our readers to know that until the first edition of Johnson's Dictionary was published in 1755, the term was not to be found in the vocabularies of our language designating its present use. In Barrett's Alviric, published in 1580, Parlor, or Parlor, was described as a place to sup in later. Menchu's Guide unto Tongues, in 1617, gave it as an inner room to dine or to sup in, but Johnson's definition is a room in houses on the first floor, elegantly furnished for reception or entertainment. To the latter part of the 18th century the English furniture of which time has been discussed in this chapter belong the quaint little urn stands which were made to hold the urn with boiling water while the teapot was placed on the little slide which is drawn out from underneath the tabletop. In those days tea was an expensive luxury, and the urn stand, of which there is an illustration, in late in the fashion of the time, is a dainty relic of the past, together with the old mahogany or marquetry tea caddy, which was sometimes the object of considerable skill and care. One of these designed by Chippendale is illustrated on page 179 and another by Hepolite will be found on page 194. They were fitted with two and sometimes three bottles or teapays of silver or Battersea enamel, to hold the black and green teas, and one really good examples of these daintily fitted tea caddies are offered for sale. They bring large sums. The wine table of this time deserves a word. These are now somewhat rare, and are only to be found in a few old houses, and in some of the colleges at Oxford and Cambridge. These were found with revolving tops, which had circles turned out to a slight depth for each glass to stand in and they were sometimes shaped like the half of a flat ring. These latter were for placing in front of the fire, when the outer side of the table formed a convivial circle, round which the sippers gathered after they had left the dinner table. One of these old tables is still to be seen in the hall of Gray's Inn, and the writer was told that its fellow was broken and had been sent away. They are nearly always of good rich mahogany, and have legs more or less ornamental according to circumstances. A distinguishing feature of English furniture of the last century was the partiality for secret drawers and contrivances for hiding away papers or valued articles, and in old secretaries and writing tables we find a great many ingenious designs which remind us of the days when there were but few banks, and people kept money and deeds in their own custody. Illustration, a china cabinet and a bookcase with secretaire, designed by T. Sheridan, and published in his Cabinet Maker and Upholsterer's Drawing Book, 1793, Chapter B.I.I. First half of the 19th century The French Revolution and First Empire Influence on Design of Napoleon's Campaigns The Cabinet presented to Marie-Louise Dutch Furniture of the Time English Furniture Sheridan's later work Thomas Hope. Architect George Smith's designs fashioned during the Regency Gothic Revival Seddon's furniture of her maker's influence on design of the restoration in France furniture of William I.V. and early part of Queen Victoria's reign Baroque and Rococo styles the paneling of rooms, dado, and skirting the art union, 
the Society of Art Sir Charles Berry and the New Palace of Westminster are Pudgeon's designs auction prices of furniture Christie's the London Club Houses scheme different trade customs exhibitions in France and England Harry Rogers work the Queen's Cradle State of Art in England during first part of present reign. Continental designs Italian carving cabinet work general remarks. Empire furniture. There are great crises in the history of a nation which stand out in prominent relief. One of these is the French Revolution, which commenced in 1792, and wrought such dire havoc amongst the aristocracy, with so much misery and distress throughout the country. It was an event of great importance, whether we consider the religion, the politics, or the manners and customs of a people, as affecting the changes in the style of the decoration of their homes. The horrors of the revolution are matters of common knowledge to every schoolboy, and there is no need to dwell either upon them or their consequences, which are so thoroughly apparent. The confiscation of the property of those who had fled the country was added to the general dislocation of everything connected with the work of the industrial arts. Nevertheless it should be borne in mind that amongst the anarchy and disorder of this terrible time in France, the National Convention had sufficient foresight to appoint a commission composed of competent men in different branches of art, to determine what state property in artistic objects should be sold, and what was of sufficient historical interest to be retained as a national possession. Reasoner, the celebrated Ebenist, whose work we have described in the chapter on Louis C.'s furniture, and David, the famous painter of the time, both served on this commission, of which they must have been valuable members. There is a passage quoted by Mr. C. Perkins the American translator of Dry Fox German work, Kunstian House, which gives us the keynote to the great change which took place in the fashion of furniture about the time of the revolution. In an article on, Art, says this democratic French writer, as early as 1790, when the great storm cloud was already threatening to burst, we have changed everything, freedom, now consolidated in France, has restored the pure taste of the antique. Farewell to your marquetry and boule your ribbons, festoons, and rosettes of gilded bronze, the hour has come when objects must be made to harmonize with circumstances. Thus it is hardly too much to say that designs were governed by the politics and philosophy of the day, and one finds in furniture of this period the reproduction of ancient Greek forms for chairs and couches, ladies' work tables are fashioned somewhat after the old drawings of sacrificial, altars, and the classical tripod is a favorite support. The mountings represent antique Roman fasces with an axe in the center, trophies of lances, surmounted by a frigid uncap of liberty, wing figures, emblematical of freedom, and antique heads of helmeted warriors arranged like cameo medallions. After the execution of Robespierre, and the abolition of the Revolutionary Tribunal in 1794, came the choice of the Directory, and then, after Bonaparte's brilliant success in Italy, and the famous expeditions to Syria and Egypt two years later, came his proclamation as first consul in 1799, which in 1802 was confirmed as a life appointment. We have only to refer to the portrait of the great soldier, represented with the crown of bay leaves and other attributes of old Roman imperialism, to see that in his mind was the ambition of reviving much of the splendor and of the surroundings of the Caesars, whom he took, to some extent, as his models, and that in founding on the ashes of the revolution a new fabric, with new people about him, all influenced by his energetic personality, he desired to mark his victories by stamping the new order of things with his powerful and assertive individualism. Illustration, cabinet in mahogany with bronze gilt mountings. 
presented by Napoleon I to Marie Louise on his marriage with her in 1810 period, Napoleon I the cabinet which was designed and made for Marie Louise, on his marriage with her in 1810, is an excellent example of the Napoleonic furniture, the wood used was almost invariably rich mahogany, the color of which made a good ground for the bronze gilt mounts which were applied, the full page illustration shows these, which are all classical in character, and though there is no particular grace in the outline or form of the cabinet, there is a certain dignity and solemnity, relieved from oppressiveness by the fine chasing and gilding of the metal enrichments, and the excellent color and figuring of the rich Spanish mahogany used, on secretaries and tables, a common ornament of this description of furniture, is a column of mahogany, with a capital and base of bronze either gilt, part gilt, or green, in the form of the head of a sphinx with the foot of an animal, Console tables are supported by sphinxes and griffins, and candelabra and wall brackets for candles have wing figures of females, stiff in modeling and constrained in attitude, but almost invariably of good material with careful finish. Illustration, tamaret, or stool, carved and gilt, armchair, in mahogany, with gilt bronze mountings, period of Napoleon Ida bas reliefs in metal which ornament the panels of the friezes of cabinets, or the marble bases of clocks are either reproductions of mythological subjects from old Italian gems and seals, or represent the battles of the emperor, in which Napoleon is portrayed as a Roman general. There was plenty of room to replace so much that had disappeared during the revolution, and a vast quantity of decorative furniture was made during the few years which elapsed before the disaster of Waterloo caused the disappearance of a power which had been almost meteoric in its career. The best authority on empire furniture is the Book of Designs published in 1809 by the architects Percier and Fondon, which is the more valuable as a work of reference, from the fact that every design represented was actually carried out, and is not a mere exercise of fancy, as is the case with many such books. In the preface the authors modestly state that they are entirely indebted to the antique for the reproduction of the different ornaments, and the originals, from which some of the designs were taken are still preserved in a fragmentary form in the Museum of the Vatican. The illustrations on page 205 of an armchair and a stool, together with that of the tripod table which ornaments the initial letter of this chapter, are favorable examples of the richly mounted and more decorative furniture of this style. While they are not free from the stiffness and constraint which are inseparable from classic designs as applied to furniture, the rich color of the mahogany, the high finish and good gilding of the bronze mounts, and the costly silk with which they are covered, render them attractive and give them a value of their own. The more ordinary furniture, however, of the same style, but without these December, 